I grew up in a household with two Jewish parents, but a household that never really acknowledged the fact that we were Jews. Uh, it wasn't until I was uh, in my 40s that I happened to meet my father in his hometown of Oldenburg, Germany. Music Nova Orchestra is teaming up with NPR's Martin Goldsmith and Scottsdale Center for the Performing Arts for a special concert, Winter Journey and the Inextinguishable Symphony on January 22nd at 6 p.m. The concert features a screening of the film Winter Journey that tells the story of NPR host Martin Goldsmith's parents who emigrated to America in 1941 after playing in the Jewish Cultural Association in Germany. I'm Melissa Green. Welcome to another episode of Heart of the Arts. So thanks for coming on today. This is KBOX Heart of the Arts, and we have two exciting guests joining us today. Music Nova's founder, Warren Cohen, and NPR host and author, Martin Goldsmith. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. You have an amazing concert and screening coming up this month in Scottsdale with the Performing Arts Center. Mr. Goldsmith, you wrote a book, The Inextinguishable Symphony, a true story of music and love in Nazi Germany. So this is based on the story of your parents who were Jewish Jewish musicians in Nazi Germany. You turned that into a film in 2019 called Winter Journey. And part of this is also Music Nova performing Carl Nielsen's Symphony Number no. 4, which relates to um, what the orchestra was playing when your parents were were uh, members. So first of all, your parents have a fascinating story. As a journalist, have you always wanted to share that? Ever since I learned about it, yes. Uh, I, and it was a long journey because I grew up in a household with two Jewish parents, but a household that never really acknowledged the fact that we were Jews. Uh, it wasn't until I was uh, in my 40s that I happened to meet my father in his hometown of Oldenburg, Germany, and he showed me where his father's store had been. His father had a a woman's clothing store called the Haus der Mode. And um, I learned a bit more about what had happened. And I began asking my father questions. And I began doing research in Washington, D.C. at the Holocaust Museum and in Berlin and Frankfurt, Germany. But uh, much of the research was just having conversations with my father. And that is those conversations really form the basis for the film Winter Journey. Uh, starring the late, great Swiss actor Bruno Gang as my father. Yeah, he um, he did amazing. And I like the way uh, your father's personality came across. Um, so I have questions about that. He had such an interesting personality. And it seems like I couldn't quite pinpoint if... Um, like you said, he didn't acknowledge being Jewish, and that was for traumatic reasons, and I'm assuming for other reasons that audience members might not be aware of. Exactly. Um, he used to refer to us as so-called Jews, but he never acknowledged the fact that he was, in fact, the uh, uh, the son of a Jewish man, the grandson of Moses Goldschmidt, the great-grandson of Levi Goldschmidt. And in the midst of my research, I happened to find in the rabbinical records of Oldenburg uh, a document dated from April 30th, 1926, the year my father turned 13, and it was a record of his bar mitzvah, which he claimed not to remember. And anyone who's listening 
who's had a bar mitzvah knows that is virtually impossible that you would forget your, your bar mitzvah. Right. So it was, it was, um, a, as I say, sort of a long and strange journey to find out uh, the truth, but it was, it was very, very gratifying. Yeah. And you have, you did research at the Holocaust Museum and that's where some of those photographs came from. I from, in the film, you know how you told the story just by showing photographs to help move it along. I found a number of photographs there. Uh, Anders Ostergaard, the director of the film, found um, <clears throat> photographs in archives in Berlin. The Berlin Akademie der Künste, a museum in Berlin, had actually run uh, an exhibition about the Kulturbund, the Jewish Kulturbund, the cultural association, this extraordinary all Jewish performing arts ensemble that included my parents. And, and uh, as I say, the Akademie der Künste ran a, uh, an exhibition about the Kulturbund and honors went to their archives and found up on more photographs and did that, those wonderful um, feats of, of, of magic that uh, filmmaking is, is capable of where some of these old photographs actually come to life yeah. in front of you. Yeah, I love the young actor who played your dad as a kid. They looked very similar. Um, yeah. And a really cool part of the film, Warren, I wanted to ask your take on the film. And I, uh, one of my favorite parts was when he falls in love with the magic flute. Um, my experience, my musical experience has been very, I, I guess, very different in a certain way. Um, and but the idea of falling in love with a particular piece of music or falling in love with something through a particular piece of music, um, that's kind of, that's very, very expressive and very, very, uh, very important. But um, it, to, to say I relate, it's a very, very interesting thing because my own experiences in life have been so radically unlike the experiences that Martin went through. Um, you know, I came, I, my last name is Cohen. I am recognizably Jewish on my, and yet I am probably by most uh, metrics, not Jewish. So I have an almost opposite experience. Instead of it being hidden, it was very, very much exposed in my life, but it was misleading um, because my father, although, you know, he was Jewish, um, he was not bar mitzvahed. Uh, his father was not bar mitzvahed. His grandfather was not bar mitzvahed. They, they were not part of that. And yet my father regarded it as an extremely important thing to maintain the name Cohen so that basically we could weed out anti any anti-Semites that were uh, in our midst because we were of Jewish ancestry. Now, my mother, of course, wasn't Jewish. My mother is Ukrainian. And we had, um, and I wasn't brought up with any of, of I, I'm not culturally Jewish. So the experience is almost the opposite in a certain way. And there's something about that that I enjoy a great deal uh, because of the fact that it shows the different types of experiences and the complexity of human interactions, you know, and how different they can be. You can have things that look like a kind of similar experience or look like you have a similar background and yet it can be completely misleading. And that I think is kind of an important thing in terms of the, the movie. Um, the, this is an extraordinary journey we're talking about. And, uh, 
some truly extraordinary people. I mean, the fact that he got Bruno Gantz to do this, wow. I mean, you know, you're talking about one of the greatest actors of the, uh, you know, of all time, uh, uh, doing, uh, portraying him. And Martin told me some fascinating things, perhaps, I, I think maybe you want to share that, about uh, how Bruno Gantz, in fact, um, came about the character. You know, I thought that was really interesting. It was I when I met Bruno uh, in Tucson, and just parenthetically, uh, my it's wonderful that Musica Nova is doing this in Scottsdale, just uh, down the interstate in Tucson. My, my parents lived for a number of years. Alas, my mom only had three years uh, in Tucson before her death in 1984. My father lived there another 20 years or so. And um, so we found a, uh, a home that was very similar to what, where my parents lived that served as my father's home in the film. And we began shooting in January of uh, 2018. And when I met Bruno, I expected that he would take me by the sleeve and, and uh, pull me into a corner somewhere and say, now, Martin, I want you to tell me everything you can remember about your father, his physical attributes, uh, how he walked, how he spoke, uh, did he smoke a pipe, uh, all of those things. In fact, Bruno wanted nothing whatsoever to do with me. Uh, he wanted to create his own character, and it was based entirely on the script and on his genius. And the result is that there are moments in the film when I find myself forgetting that I'm looking at an actor portraying my father, and I think it's my dad himself. There are there are certain lines in the script, which I, I co-wrote with Honoris Ostergaard, um, certain lines based verbatim on discussions that my father and I had. And there is one moment in the film when he describes the landlord of my, my parents' apartment in, in Berlin um, and how the landlord, Adolf Cohen, uh, kept a suitcase by the door. And uh, my father would once, once asked him, why do you do that? And, and Adolf Cohen said, well, I want to have something to take along when the Gestapo comes for me. My father says, oh, that those are just rumors, fairy tales. And then Adolf Cohen looked at my father and said, you will remember Adolf Cohen. And the way Bruno Gantz speaks that line was precisely the way my father did. How he managed to do that, how he managed to conjure up my dad, just off words on a, on a script, was, is, is phenomenal. And uh, I, I do hope people contemplating uh, coming to the, this, this event on the 22nd of January will arrive in plenty of time to, to watch mm -hmm. the film. Yes, it's 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 he's very captivate captivating. Um, the whole film is. And I uh, wanted to ask about your relationship with the director, Andras Ustengar. How did um, that relationship develop? Well, it, it, it's. Um... I, I one day got an email from this fellow claiming to be a Danish filmmaker named Anders Ostergaard, saying he wanted to make a documentary film based on my book, The Inextinguishable Symphony. And my first thought was this guy must be uh, related to that Nigerian prince who, who, who wants you to send him a few thousand dollars in return for millions. 
<laughs> but it turned out that there really is a, a man named Honor Sostegard. He, one of his earlier films was nominated for an Academy Award. And he, I, I rather than delete the email, I wrote back to him and I said, yes, I'd be thrilled to have the film based on the book. He caught the next plane to Washington and, and he came to my house and we spent several hours going over ideas. And that's how the whole thing was, was born. He wow. happened to know Bruno Gantz's agent and sent the agent a copy of the script. And uh, within a couple of days, the agent called uh, Honors back and said, Bruno would love to do the film. Um, many of his fans will remember that uh, perhaps his most celebrated role was that of Adolf Hitler about a dozen years ago in the film Downfall. And there he, there he is uh, on the screen as Hitler, and then a dozen years later, in his very last film, a film he completed just weeks before his death, he's playing my, my father, George Goldsmith. Wow, he looks great in the film. He, he does, he yeah. does. <laughs> that is, that's like a dream come true type of a situation, just kind of like a meant to be kind of thing. Um, so it was inspired by the Carl Nielsen Symphony Number no. Four, and of course, Music Canova specializes in playing these forgotten works. So it's a really beautiful piece of music, but it's heavy. So, what is your interpretation of the piece and bringing it into the concert hall? What does that mean to you? Um, I well, I would not call Nielsen Fourth Symphony a forgotten piece. It's it's kind of one of those pieces that's hung around the edges of the repertoire. Um, Nielsen tends to be one of those composers who every few years you get, he gets a new champion, you know, um, uh, uh, Leonard Bernstein during the 1960s did, did a, a Nielsen series with the New York Philharmonic, um, and he recorded a bunch of the symphonies and, uh, uh the Philharmonic, as a matter of fact, recently they had, uh, Alan Gilbert did a, did a, did a, a, a Nielsen cycle with them when he was music director in New York as well. And there have been, and his music is very popular in in um, in, in Scandinavia, and it, it is played. I mean, the piece in terms of the classical music world is 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 known, but it's not played that often because Nielsen is a peculiar composer. I mean, his music is different. When you listen to it, there's elements. For example, there's one thing about it that sometimes he uses. And I, I, I'm going to try to do this without being technical about it. He uses certain devices where if you're not, if you don't understand where he's coming from, it sounds almost like jazz. And there's these things, things that sound very, very jazzy, the way in which he goes between major and minor and stuff like that. So and you're going, OK, well, where did that come from? I mean, this was written in 1916 before some of those devices would have been really, really uh uh, imp you know, really, really part of the musical vocabulary. Um, another thing is, is that there's very sectional things. Like in the first movement, he's got um, this, this really beautiful theme that comes back at the end. And then in between it, he transforms it in a way that makes it very jocular. And at one time sounds almost like a, like a, like a, a village fair or something like that. So there's all these transformations of it. Um, another peculiarity is the second movement is almost entirely winds. There's almost no strings. That's almost unheard of in a symphony. He did this later in another one of his symphonies, in the sixth symphony, where he did the second movement completely without strings. 
Um, then he has a third movement that's almost all strings. Again, in the Sixth Symphony, he did one where it was completely like that. So he does these very peculiar things. And then what people know the symphony for are the timpani. And there is this set, this thing that goes on in the last movement, and it is something you have to go to the concert hall to really appreciate, which is that they have timpani set up on both ends of the stage, and they're doing a battle at each other. Now, this was actually inspired by World War I, because he wrote it during World War I. And he has this battle between the two timpani at opposite ends of the stage. And the, in the middle, you hear the uh, orchestra initially just making these sort of like noises, like, please stop type of noises. And then this eventually develops into the, the gorgeous theme from the first movement being played again and kind of overcoming some of that power that was coming from the sides. So it's an extraordinarily vital piece. And in terms of the connection with the film, I, I mean, it's kind of extraordinary that this was the work they were rehearsing when the orchestra ended, because it is almost a metaphor for the survival of music and the survival of people. There could be no better. And it's extraordinary. To, I mean, when, when I heard that that was what they were rehearsing, I mean, my mind was blown. It was like, oh, that piece of all pieces? Extraordinary. I mean, just absolutely a perfect metaphor for it. Yeah. In, in the movie, I, he says something about how, I'm not going to quote it right, but like reality yeah. or what's real always wins. That's right. That's right. And, and music always wins. So, you know, yes. <laughs> that's very much what happened to this case. You know, it's like it comes it, through victorious in a way. Yeah, it does. And, and I would just like to uh, interject the, um, the, the nature of this extraordinary organization, this Kulturbund. Uh, in 1933, 90 years ago this month, when Adolf Hitler became chancellor of Germany, the Nazis began to kick Jews out from their positions with German orchestras, opera companies, and theater companies. And these now unemployed Jewish artists came together to perform, to form this cultural association. And they put on operas and symphony concerts and chamber music concerts. And they, they, they staged plays, they uh, showed films, all for Jewish audiences to be, to attend a Jewish, to attend a Kulturbund concert, you had to be Jewish, to perform with the Kulturbund as a violinist or a flutist or a dancer or a set designer or to take tickets to the box office, you had to be a Jew. So this was very much a closed society. And they were in the spring of 1941, uh, as I write in the book, uh, Rudolf Schwartz, the conductor of the Kulturbund Orchestra wanted to rehearse the piece that would open the 1941-1942 season. And he chose this, the Nielsen Inextinguishable Symphony. But before they could give the performance, uh, the Kulturbund was dissolved by the Nazis from one day to the next in September of 41. And everyone who had not managed to get out by that time were sent to the camps. My parents had gotten out just about three weeks earlier, the very beginning of June of 41. So they were extraordinarily fortunate. Um, and I, as Warren um, alludes to, uh, the symphony, the name of the symphony, symphony, the inextinguishable symphony, and Nielsen's motto, music is life, and like life, inextinguishable, just fit the whole story like 
a glove. Yes. <laughs> it's so amazing. Um, yeah, it was an interesting opportunity for the musicians in the Jewish Association, that ensemble. They were grateful for that opportunity. They were, but they were also aware that they were allowed to perform, in fact, encouraged to perform by Joseph Goebbels, the Minister for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, as it was called. Uh, mm -hmm. Goebbels could um, fend off any criticism of the way the Jews of Germany were being treated by saying, look, they have their own orchestra, they have their own opera company. I mean, if all these stories you hear were true, we, we wouldn't be that generous to them. So the, the Kulturbund remains to this day a somewhat ambiguous organization. It definitely gave um, opportunities like my two, two musicians like my parents to have very fulfilling careers, um, brief though their tenure with the Kulturbund was, but it was also a propaganda tool. And every time uh, uh, an actor took the stage or a, a conductor gave the downbeat for a Kulturbund uh, concert, they were doing the Nazis' bidding. So it's a somewhat ambiguous organization. Yeah, this is, this is actually one of the more interesting issues to me, which is, in a way, it gives them cover. And this is always the danger. It is always a danger to give bad people cover with various types of things. And in fact, culture for the Nazis was their cover. Um, we are, you know, they regarded themselves as the, the beneficiaries of great German culture. Um, and that was, of course, part of the reason why the, the Jewish orchestra was forbidden from playing any German music or what was German. I mean, Mendelssohn was as German as you could get, but they were allowed to play him because he was, quote, Jewish, right? Um, but on the other hand, this whole idea did give them cover. Um, and it did, again, work to the whole idea of the idea of an apartheid state, right? An apartheid state, a state where you are separating out various people and separating out influences. And that way is always dangerous and always creates these sorts of problems. And I, I mean, for me, this is really interesting because I look at what's going on in Russia and the way in which Putin has... Um, has, has tried, kind of politicized uh, uh, his artists and the people who are close to him. And um, it, there's been, it, you know, the idea, well, look, we are, we are representatives of, of Russian culture and we don't want, and we want to maintain that idea. But those people should, in fact, be severely censured, uh, you know. And yet he looks, he looks at them as being representative of our great culture. And that in itself is just a really dangerous type of idea. And the idea that Jewish culture was somehow separate from German culture in, among the Nazis, that's one of the most ludicrous ideas you could ever imagine. I mean, they were so deeply intertwined and integrated that it created this really, really false narrative. On the other hand, they got to play pieces they would never have done. I don't know that they would have ever been interested in doing the Nielsen Fourth Symphony if they had been able to play the standard German repertoire they were used I'd to. also like to point out that in addition to the film Winter Journey, based on my book, The Inextinguishable Symphony, and the performance of The Inextinguishable Symphony, the Nielsen Fourth, uh, Maestro Cohen has selected uh, 
one of the pieces that was actually on the very last program that the Kulturbund gave before they were dissolved in June of 1941, the great tone poem Finlandia by Sibelius, the Finnish composer of, the, of earlier in the, in the 20th century. And uh, Warren has put together, in addition to his wonderful orchestra, uh, a choir uh, made up of uh, singers from uh, various religious backgrounds. Wow. Okay. Because so, the, the, that's the original version. Because isn't there a version without? The, the original is the one without chorus. Uh, in fact, the, the way what happened was, is that the, the tune about three quarters of the way through Finlandia is a very much a chorale. And um, people had wanted to set it to music, uh, wanted to set it as a, a set words to it. And um, initially Sibelius kind of resisted this idea, but he eventually allowed um, the chorale to be done as a, set, as a standalone piece with specific words that were written by a Finnish, uh, written by a Finnish, Finnish poet. And he allowed that to be, to be done separately. And then after that happened, um, the idea was that we could perhaps combine the two and do, uh, do a choral version that includes the chorale um, <clears throat> within the context of Finlandia as a piece. And for this purpose, I took the original Finnish words and I transformed them a little bit because they are because originally the words essentially say Finland awakes. And so I changed that to kind of the human spirit awakes. And so it's the idea of the dawning of a better time. And using that idea, I made it more universal rather than using just the Finnish words. So it was a slight transformation, but I mostly kept to the Finnish original. Yeah, no, it's a very fitting piece as well. Yeah. And how is the whole how is the whole story of Winter Journey helping you bring new life to this to this symphony by Carl Nielsen. The way the way I would put it is it's the perfect metaphor for the music that we're playing. And in a sense, that could be inspirational in a performance way. But it's it's kind of vague and abstract and it's in the back, back of my mind. Um, it's it's not going to have a specific change in terms of how I would play this passage or that passage. But I think what it will do is for the audience's point of view, it contextualizes the music much better. It gives them a context in which to understand the music because you're taking an idea. I mean, Finlandia was originally written as a protest against czarist rule in, uh, in Finland in 1899. It was written as a, and it was uh, censored by the uh, by by the czarist uh, censors, and uh, they used to perform it under different names like "Flowers Bloom in the Finnish Spring" and other things. And in in fact, Martin told me that when they were doing it uh, with uh, it with the uh, Kulturbund uh, Orchestra, what they did is they they called they just said tone poem opus twenty six. They did not put the name Finlandia because they knew that that particular thing was a signal that Finlandia is a single is a, is a signal of a uh, protest against uh, against tyranny, 
And uh, it's always had that particular thing. And I think that it's one of those things. It's like you appreciate music more when you understand its context. And taking that film, giving that music context, I think it will make the musical experience more meaningful for the audience. And immediately after the uh, screening of Winter Journey, mm -hmm. uh, Warren and I will be out front and uh, talking to each other and, and entertaining questions mm -hmm. from the audience. Correct. We'll have a lot of roughly a 30-minute Q&A, and then Warren uh, leads the performances of the Nielsen and, and the Sibelius. That's longtime NPR host and author Martin Goldsmith, joined by conductor and founder of Music Canova, Warren Cohen. They're presenting Winter Journey and the Inextinguishable Symphony, January 22nd at 6 p.m. There's a screening of the film Winter Journey, followed by the performance of Carl Nielsen's Symphony No. 4. Tickets and all the information at ScottsdalePerformingArts.org. For KBOX Heart of the Arts, I'm Melissa Green.